Welcome to Love Your Library, Hampshire Library's podcast. I'm Kate Price-McCarthy with my co-host, Mary Stone. Hello, Mary. Hi, Kate. And thanks to our supporter, BorrowBox, our library app that allows you to download ebooks and audiobooks straight to your phone or tablet. All you need is your library membership number and PIN. So, Kate, how's your summer been so far? It's been great. It's just going past far too fast. I know what you mean. I can't believe it's August already. Autumn is not far away. Anyway, this uh, this episode's title is inspired by our superstar guest author, Lisa Jewell, and her brand new book, Invisible Girl. You'll hear Lisa talking about this any minute now. And later in the podcast, we're going to be chatting with one of our colleagues about another girl-titled book. That's Vinegar Girl by Ann Tyler, which is one of our unlimited audiobooks on BorrowBox this month. Okay, so on to Lisa Jewell, whose 19th novel, Invisible Girl, was published this month. Lisa's always been a popular novelist, but her popularity has gone stratospheric since her books took a turn for the dark side with psychological thrillers like Then She Was Gone, Watching You, and last year's number one bestseller, The Family Upstairs. Anyone who's a regular listener to this podcast will know I am an absolute sucker for a well-written psychological thriller. And Lisa really is one of the best in this genre. She does these wonderfully observed portraits of families and their relationships and all the dark secrets that get in the crevices. Awesome. Can't wait to start reading some of her books. Haven't read any yet, but I'm looking forward to reading them. And you spoke to her quite recently. We're coming up to the interview now. Here's Kate talking to Lisa and the interview kicks off with a short prologue from Invisible Girl. Valentine's night, 11.59pm. I duck down and pull my hoodie close around my face. Ahead of me, the girl with red hair is picking up speed. She knows she's being followed. I pick up my speed to match hers. I only want to talk to her, but I can tell from the way she's moving that she's terrified. I slow down at the sound of muffled footsteps behind me. I turn and see a figure coming after us. I don't need to see their face to know who it is. It's him. My heart starts pounding beneath my ribs, pumping blood through my body so hard and fast that I can feel the cut on my leg begin to throb. I pull back into the shadows and wait for the man to pass. He turns the corner and I see his body language change as he sees the woman ahead. I recognise the shape of him, the angles of his body, and I know exactly what he is planning to do. I move from my hiding place in the shadows. I stride out toward the man, toward danger. My action's my own, but my fate left wide open. Lovely. Thank you very much. I'm going to start by saying thank you so much for joining me to talk about your new book, Invisible Girl, which I absolutely loved. I warn anyone, I uh, I sat down and I just couldn't stop it. So I had a very, very late night. Um, to, but so thank you so much. Really enjoyed it. So can I start by asking the really awkward question? Could you just sum up for us what it's all about? I found in trying to sum up what this book is about that I just get absolutely in knots trying to explain it and I make it sound really complicated. (laughs) And so I think the easiest thing for me to do is to go back to what the original inspiration for the book was, which was a man I saw on the street one day um, a couple of winters back who looked kind of creepy and I couldn't work out what it was about him that looked sort of creepy. 
And I thought I'd really like to know what it feels like to be that man. So in fact, my working title for this book the whole way through was Creep. And it was really about him. And he turns into a character called Owen Pick. And he's 33 years old. And he lives um, in his aunt's spare bedroom and sleeps in a single bed. He's a virgin. He's socially awkward. He's never had a girlfriend. And he's very uncomfortable in his own skin. And he makes women feel very uncomfortable when he's around them. At the very beginning of his story, he has been asked to leave his job as a college lecturer after um, some complaints from some female students about the way he behaved at the Christmas disco. And so it was really about Owen, but I put him into this very interesting situation. I wanted to see how far a guy like that would go if the resentment built up to a high enough level. So after losing his job, he ends up researching unfair dismissal. And in doing so, ends up in an incel forum. And incels, for those who don't know, are um, that's an abbreviation for the term involuntary celibate, who are men who identify as men who are unfairly passed by um, by women who congregate in, in online forums and what have you. And he lives um, in Hampstead. And the story kind of all comes together with some other people who live in his community when a teenage girl goes missing from outside his flat and he was the last person to see her alive. Yes, it's told from a, a number of different viewpoints and it's actually quite a while before we get into uh, into Owen's mind. Uh, and when, I, when I've heard you talk about this book and you've mentioned this, this creepy neighbour who everyone avoids, but maybe everything isn't quite what it seems and that's a kind of reoccurring theme within the book. Yes. And he... He had me in mind of uh, media coverage of, of uh, Christopher Jeffries and that, that awful uh, Bristol murder, or even a kind of modern day Boo Radley. And w- w- you say it was inspired by somebody you saw, but were you thinking of people like Christopher Jeffries at the time? I was not, in fact. And at, at early early stages of writing the book, my editor and my agent asked if they could have a little synopsis. And I sent the synopsis out, and I'd only written a few thousand words at that point. And my agent said, oh, that that sounds like the Christopher Jeffries case. Um, and I went straight onto the internet to Google it. And, and, and that kind of sort of focused me entirely. I thought I'd, I thought I'd been writing something random. But I thought, <laughs> oh, this actually happens to people. This is, this, is, yeah. this is the real world. This could happen to, I'm not going to put in any spoilers, but this, this could happen mm. to just some regular guy on the street who, for whatever reason, has been picked out by their neighbours, by people who don't know them, as a wrong you know, someone capable of doing something unspeakable and unthinkable. Uh, so that was, yeah, so that really focused me. I was like, okay, that, that's what this is going to be. It's going to be about um, that sort of injustice. In your recent novels, I, I've felt that location and place to be very much like major characters within the book, uh, you know, the, the Grand House or the Falling to Bits House in Chelsea. And this again is the case in Invisible Girl, as, as Hampstead and its surrounding area seems to play a really crucial role with the eerily empty road and the um, the strange architecture around the heath. And also in this case, the sort of absence of a house, the empty building plot. So what is it about this area which interested you in writing about it? Well, it's very, very specific. I can I can tell you exactly. Um, it wasn't a sort of vague like, oh, that'd be an interesting thing to write about. I So I live um, on the other side of Hampstead in a slightly more sort of rough and ready area. And we had our house renovated and we needed to move out of here for eight months. 
And much like the character in the book, Kate, I saw an advert in the property section of a local paper for a posh flat in Hampstead. And I thought, oh, I'd love to live in Hampstead. You know, what could be nicer than living in NW3 with all of that beauty and, um, you know, the sort of cheechiness on your doorstep? And so we moved into this amazing high ceiling department in this grand house on one of the nicest roads in Hampstead, which is, you know, the fictionalised version of, of it is in the book. And from pretty much the minute I arrived there, I felt like I didn't want to be there. It felt wrong. I just felt that the atmosphere was skewed. There was just something in the air that I didn't like. And I tried to pinpoint what it was. And I I don't know. I don't know if it was was just too much space for people. So even though you're in London, you're not part of a community. It hasn't got that feel that a lot of... I'm talking about the big streets outside Hampstead. Hampstead Village itself is actually quite community-minded. But these big streets that lead up to Hampstead with these huge houses and these electronic gates, and they're very, very anonymous. And you just get the impression that the people who live there wish nobody else lived there. They would like everybody else to move out. You know, really, they should be on a sort of 400-acre country estate somewhere. <laughs> but for some reason, they're living in, in London. And, yeah, I just felt on on edge the whole time I was there. And that was something I really wanted to explore, this idea of living somewhere that's so aspirational. But once you're there, you just think, no, this is there's something lacking here um, and the desperation just to get back to normality. Yes. Well, I, I, I love particularly hearing about that, Eric. In fact, my son has just moved to West Hampstead to a grotty student flat just off the, uh, the Finchley Road. Which is where um, I live. I live in West Hampstead just off the Finchley Road. Not in a grotty student flat. I live in a nice house. <laughs> but yes, exactly. And that's a, and, and that was, you know, it's so interesting to me. That, that And this is the way that London works. London is a fascinating city. And I'm not sure it's like this in other cities where a quarter of a mile you can go from one extreme to the other. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just, like, just crossing the Finchley Road and you're just suddenly in a completely different environment and the people are completely different. Well, I was glad to see you mention the drama school a couple of times in passing because that's, yeah, that's where my son is. So, uh, Oh, so. okay. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. But yeah, no, so I really, I had a special uh, warmth about uh, hearing more about the era. I can't wait to go back and visit again now yes. and see all the places. That Absolutely. You can do a little tour. <laughs> Um, but yeah, no, you mentioned earlier on about this strange phenomenon of incel men, the uh, the involuntary involuntary celibacy, and the way they blame women who they see as rejecting them. Is that was that an issue you were interested in and you wanted to bring it in, or was it more of a kind of plot point as a, a, a way yeah. to show how? I think it was something I'd always been interested in, and I wasn't entirely sure I was going to bring it in at the outset. I was very much more interested in exploring Owen and what it would be like to be Owen. Um, and then the more I wrote him, the more I thought it would be fascinating to see how he would react to that community, because he's kind of on the cusp. He's, he's susceptible to radicalization, which is another really interesting thing to write about. He is very much the sort of person who could be tipped over the edge. And so the minute I realized that that was somewhere interesting, I could go with him. I kind of went back to a documentary I'd already watched about the incel community and I watched it again. And someone blogged about five years ago, someone went incognito into these incel forums, a woman, and reported back on what she found in these forums. And it's chilling. I mean, it's absolutely chilling because they don't just blame women for not wanting to be with them. They blame society. There's this idea that society is unfairly skewed against them um, and that everything is geared away from allowing them to pursue relationships with women. Uh, So there's no looking inside themselves at all. 
and thus mm. ensues lots of resentment and bitterness, which can sometimes spill over into acts of terrorism, which has happened, unfortunately. I loved the recurring image of the the fox, which is a kind of it's a an animal that's a mirror and a bit of a reflection of the invisible girl of the title. Uh, and I'd love to know a bit more about why you picked on this animal as a central theme. Well, I think going back to what you you mentioned earlier, the um this plot. This, this empty space in this street in London, which exists. It's on the street that I lived on in Hampstead. They pulled down a house many years ago and they've yet to rebuild anything in its place. So you've got this empty plot and it's big. It's a good half an acre and it's grown to, you know, it's grown wild over the years. And it's a massive part of the story in Invisible Girl. You know, it's a big part of the, the physical setting of the story. And I've never been into this plot, unlike my characters. I never went into this plot mm-hmm. But when I was picturing it or imagining myself in this plot, I couldn't imagine this plot without there being some sort of wildlife and and a fox. And the fox is this weird thing when you live in a city and obviously you're not very connected to nature or wildlife, but the urban fox gives you that connection. And it's kind of, it, it always feels really meaningful to me, at least, when I see an owl or a fox in the city. There's something really meaningful about it. So the first time my character goes into this plot of land and she's, uh, she sees this fox, it just stayed with me. I just thought it became apparent that this fox needed to be a part of, of the overall setting of the novel. So I, every, every time that we're back in that plot of land, I brought the fox back. It seemed very important for some reason. Now, I was interested, you were talking a little bit about the inspiration behind the book, seeing somebody who you wanted to kind of get inside your head, who was the inspiration for Owen. And I remember about your last book, The Family Upstairs, you've been inspired by seeing a mother in the south of France sneaking her children into beachside showers to clean them up. Was there someone who inspired the really complex character of Sapphire? And I hope I'm pronouncing her the right. Yes, Sapphire. Yes. Um, uh, was there someone who behind the character not, of Sapphire? Not at all. And she wasn't even going to be in it originally. Originally, I was only going to tell the story from the points of view of um, Owen and Kate. And then the minute I mentioned Sapphire in an early chapter, um, she is a patient. So Kate's married to Rowan, who is a, a psychotherapist um, who works with children. And Sapphire was a patient of his when she was about 12 years old. And I mentioned her in passing in an early chapter from Kate's perspective. And the minute I, I think there was something about her name. I just gave her this name, mm-hmm. Sapphire Maddox. And the minute I, and then I physically describe her. And at that point, I just thought, I really want to know more about her. I was just interested in her from, from the offset. What happened to her? Why was she having psychotherapy? What does she, you know, where does she live? What's her background? And what part could she possibly play in the story? Um, so I sort of brought her in quite last minute. Um, so she wasn't inspired by anyone apart from, um, myself I suppose given that I introduced her so randomly and she turned it turned into a main character so no she wasn't someone whose head I'd been actively wanting to get into she was a kind of last minute surprise I think when I was writing her I felt very much that she never felt vulnerable the very fact that she could put herself in the position of sleeping outdoors and there's never any suggestion that she feels scared or that she's got a knife in her pocket just in case she feels, I think she feels weirdly invulnerable, even though obviously the reason why she was having therapy in the first place is because something bad has happened to her. 
Yeah, so when she sees Rowan's family from a distance, there's, I suppose there's that sort of objectivity and she can see the gaps in the family and she can see what's going wrong because she's got that space from it, whereas she hasn't got that objectivity with herself, so she can't see how vulnerable she is. Yeah, so it's a sort of interesting dynamic that she's actually the one who's in danger, yet she's much more, as you say, concerned about the family that she's been watching. I've I've asked about the inspiration between those two characters of, of Owen and Sapphire. I'm sort of not going to ask about the inspiration behind the the main family, the Fours, because it's so uh, they're so alive when you hear about them. You just know they've come from yourself and who you've observed and your own situation. It's uh, they are so believable. And, and the relationship of the mother to her children just resonated so much with me. But I also found that awful, creeping sense of paranoia she begins to feel where she doesn't know who to trust and what to trust and how much to push um, without sounding paranoid and, be diff- and being Because she, she knows from the beginning that there's darkness in her family and she's tried to pinpoint the darkness already the year before we meet her and it just came back and, and hit her around the face and it all went horribly wrong. But she hasn't lost that feeling that there's some darkness in the family. And in fact, when we first meet her, she's convinced herself that the darkness comes from her. And so we watch her slowly kind of coming to terms with the fact that it's not her, that there's some other darkness in her family. And she's sort of flailing around trying to find where it might be coming from. And it's really unsettling and unnerving. I know I say this quite often, but Lisa really was such a pleasure to listen to. She's so bright and she's really thought provoking about some of the issues she tackles. I'm I'm going to be looking out in future for opportunities to hear her talk again, maybe seeing if she appears at book festivals and things like that. She's just great. Yeah, no, that was a really good interview. I found it quite fascinating. And she's obviously quite a character. Yeah, absolutely. Lovely guy. She was, uh, I didn't get the sense that she was putting on a front at all. She was just very happy just to sit down and have a good old chat. Okay, on to the next section of the podcast, for which we're joined by another member of the library team to talk about one of this month's unlimited titles on BorrowBox. These are audiobooks and ebooks that you don't have to wait for, even if loads of other people want to borrow them. So here we are with Hattie, who produces Hampshire Library's newsletter each month. And we're going to be talking about Vinegar Girl by Anne Tyler. This is a modern retelling of Shakespeare's Taming of the Shrew, uh, this time set in Baltimore. Welcome to the podcast, Hattie. Hello, happy to be here. So Hattie, for those who aren't already subscribers to the Hampshire Library newsletter, could you tell us a bit about it? Yeah, so it's our monthly newsletter. It's called Read All About It and it goes out to 16,000 people all across Hampshire who love books and who love libraries. And if anyone wants to sign up for the newsletter, there's a, you'll find a link at the bottom of our, our website uh, and we'll also put a link in the show notes so you can check back to that as well. Okay, so on to the book. I'm guessing you listened to this as an audiobook from BorrowBox. Yeah, I did. I kind of did this thing where I read it and listened at the same time, which is quite exciting, really. I thought I'll, I'll try and read it um, in, in both ways. So I was brushing my teeth and listening and lying <laughs> in bed and reading, which is quite a nice way to do it. I've done that with audiobooks and it is quite, it's so, the, the tricky thing about it is you have to remember where you were and fast forward to the right place all the time. But it's, it, yeah, it's quite a good way. I like the multimedia approach with, uh, with taking that. And do you do, do you listen to a lot of audiobooks on BorrowBox? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, 
one of the blessings of lockdown really is having the time to sit back and relax a little bit and I think audiobooks have been a great way to do that because you might not after looking at a screen all day as a lot of people who are working from home are um, it's quite nice to not have to look at one and just sit back and listen Absolutely, yeah. Now we've really noticed the number of uh, of users of uh, BorrowBox and particularly audiobooks has shot up over this period of time. Okay, so next we're going to ask you all the really tough questions we ask all our contributors. Could you tell us what this book is all about? Well, as you've said, the plot is based on The Taming of the Shrew, which has been updated to present-day Baltimore in America with Katharina or Kate, of the original, becoming Kate Batista, who's an unmarried 29-year-old college dropout who's now working, unhappily, as a preschool assistant. Her father is Dr. Batista, he's called Baptista in the Shakespeare original, and he's an eccentric research scientist. Kate has to look after her dad, as well as her younger sister Bunny, who's Bianca in the original story. Just like in Shakespeare's version, Kate's father is keen for her to marry, but in this case it's to Piotr, his brilliant lab assistant, just so that Piotr won't have to leave the country when his student visa expires. And just as in the original play, Kate is not very happy about this plan, as you can imagine. Of course. Okay, and I understand Anne Tyler's rewriting of this Shakespeare play is one of a number commissioned by publishers Hogarth Press to mark the 400th anniversary of the playwright's death. Yeah, that's right. Um, I think among that, their other publishers got Jeanette Winterson to adapt The Winter's Tale, I think. Margaret Outwood did The Tempest and Joe Nesbo did Macbeth and uh, Tracy Chevalier did Othello. So yeah, some incredibly well-known names in that list. I think Gillian Flynn is supposed to be adapting Hamlet too, so that should be really interesting. Yeah, I read Joe Nesbo's version of Macbeth quite recently. In fact, as I listened to it as an audiobook, and I found it absolutely fascinating. I know the play quite well, as I did it uh, many years ago for GCSE, and it was really fun to see how he had adapted the characters and their names to fit the setting of a corrupt police department within a grim northern town. Okay, so... The Taming of the Shrew, it's an interesting play for Anne Tyler to tackle because the original play is not without its problems for a modern audience. It's often cited as his most misogynist, you know, the spiky woman who's finally subdued by the dominant man. So how do you think she dealt with this? Being totally honest, I think that those problems are carried through into this version as well. I don't think you know, I think an adaptation of the source material isn't always going to solve those problems. You do see a sort of light at the end of the tunnel, maybe a little bit with this version without spoiling it too much. But, um, but, you know, it's, it's definitely this feeling of being handed off from one toxic relationship to another kind of problematic one. Often, the only person who speaks a lot of sense in the book is Bunny, who's supposed to be this incredibly vapid young girl and I, I I agree with Bunny on a lot of the stuff <laughs> I did like Bunny I think maybe there is a bit of Anne Tyler secretly fitting in her own perspective but there was a sense that in I think in Anne Tyler's version of the story that she is quite charmed by the way that Piotr accepts and even celebrates her outspokenness which certainly doesn't have in the original so rather than getting the sense that um, the Petrochio character is subduing her spirit you see we see that the possibility of the relationship between the two of them might be liberating her in some way although as you say maybe liberating her to another 
um, restrictive relationship. Uh, and it's maybe celebrating her nature rather than crushing and controlling it. I personally didn't think it had many of the problems from the original, mainly because everything is toned down. It's all about the, the green card, trying to support her dad. She, it doesn't feel like there's any coercion. She does have a choice and ultimately she's doing it to help her dad. And then during that process, she gets to know him and she gets to see that he's quite, he's a flawed character. He's not like the, he's not some romantic hero. There's he there's a realness to him that I really liked which I thought was matched in her character that you don't often get in a lot of books I felt that there was something quite natural about the two of them and their relationship growing she is quite a spiky woman in this in this play and I think she's built up a bit of a wall mainly because not because of I think her family but more because of or the family that are living but more because of what we learn about her past and the fact that maybe she's misinterpreted some things that have happened around her and she's developed an idea of what her situation is that's not real and I, I could really relate to that and how she overcomes that and suddenly finds and suddenly realizes that maybe things could be different for herself. I, yeah, I loved the uh, conversation she has with her employer about how to deal with some of the children in her in her preschool, because you know, she says what she thinks, and she's she doesn't uh, she's not interested in saying the right thing for the sake of it. Uh, she says what she thinks. She thinks what she says is absolutely reasonable, and why shouldn't she be saying it? I, I really enjoyed those uh, those scenes. I love the scenes with the school. To be honest, she is so in the wrong job. The fact fact that all these small children don't really respect her, I think is so funny. You know, it's just like she's on a level with small children, not intellectually, but in a kind of slightly naughty way. Like she just doesn't really care what people think and she'll just say what she likes and does what she likes. A bit like a naughty child. (laughs) I really like that aspect of her character as well. And I think, you know, you're right. Those are definitely some really entertaining scenes in the book. On the flip side of that, I, I... find it quite hard to and maybe it's it's because it's an adaptation but I found it quite difficult to reconcile that aspect of her character with the aspect of her character where she just is is a slave to her dad's whims you know she she adheres to all his crazy little systems in the in the house and all of that stuff so it's kind of difficult to look at someone who's so outspoken says it like it is and and does what she wants and then also see her in this kind of difficult servant-like home figure. You know, she's her. She's always seemed to be gardening, and that just seems almost out of character with what you'd expect. But maybe that's it's something that's been carried over from the Taming of the Shrew. I think it's actually less to do with the fact that she is in any way in servitude to them. It's more about the fact that she seems lost as a person, and she's just found a role for herself taking care of her sister and taking care of her dad um, and they in return benefit from that and don't try and change that situation and I think a lot of people can relate to that it's not so much that people are making you do something it's more without a vision for yourself you can find yourself doing things that you don't really want to do or aren't the best for you, for you and your out and your future. So for me, it was much more nuanced. That's what I liked about with Anne Tyler's adaptation is that she took a problematic play and gave it this slightly more nuanced retelling that maybe helped me 
believe in some of the things that she was doing and you know looking after her dad and her sister and having this job at a school which she clearly was far too intelligent to be doing she just seemed to me to be someone who was lost didn't have a purpose I mean you could argue that her purpose obviously wasn't then to just get married and have children she could have done something else but I think she does doesn't she talk about going mm. to college at the end so exactly yes yes the, yeah. the roots through is is oh. yeah it's giving her that break away from these these mundane tasks that she's sort of fallen into and hasn't had the reason or the energy to get out of so it's just a kind of habit and acceptance of these this these roles that don't really fit her but she's just taken on I, I I'd read that um, when the publishers first approached her uh, Anne Tyler had laughed because she'd always thought Shakespeare's really bad with plots but wonderful with words and basically the publisher was saying to her why don't you take this terrible plot and add your inferior words to it um, which I think is yeah quite a smart way of looking at it but maybe as you say with a kind of more nuanced more gentle subtle approach then she has made some things work that perhaps didn't in the in the, in the original. Anne Tyler might say the taming of the shoe is a rubbish plot but it's not the first time it's had a modern retelling is it? Yes, absolutely. The 1999 film 10 Things I Hate About You is a bit of a classic if you haven't seen it, it relocates the story to a U.S. high school with a young Heath Ledger and Julia Stiles. Yeah, I love it. It's been a popular one in my family for quite some time. It's good. Fun. I love that film. I think it's brilliant. It is really good, really, really good. And yeah, I mean, they. Yeah, I guess that they uh, the the screenwriters of that have had to. Uh, take on the difficulties of the plot as well and they do it really well and obviously don't forget Cole Porter's musical Kiss Me Kate and that was from the 1940s so that's another classic a few years ago with uh, some really famous songs like uh, Brush Up Your Shakespeare. So Hattie you've told us that you find some parts of this book a little bit problematic but did you actually enjoy it as a book? Was it a good read? Yeah, I did enjoy it. And, you know, I think it addresses some interesting modern day problems as well in, in the way it handles this uh, adaptation. So I think it, it addressed toxic masculinity in quite an interesting way, especially, you know, the, the final monologue, which I'm not going to spoil for anyone, but it, a really interesting take on a narrative that seems centred around a woman's story. You know, I, I found that quite, that shifting of the spotlight in the very last on the very last page of the book really a, a really interesting thing to address and I think it did it quite well I thought the writing was very good it's a very quick read I think I did it in about an evening or an afternoon actually it's interesting you were talking about there about toxic masculinity and issues and stories surrounding women it's just reminded me a little bit actually about the um the the interview we did about uh, Jane Austen's sister and about this role of women as carers and there is quite a running theme of that within this book that she has been because of the death of the mother she has been Kate has been kind of forced into this caring role kind of taking on the role that the mother did just because it's naturally assumed as the older sister she will in a way perhaps that uh, that uh, um, the eldest son in the, the family wouldn't have done so so it, yeah I quite like that I hadn't really thought about that connection before but it does make sense and maybe that's why it gives a reason for why she's so spiky she's being forced into roles that don't really suit her mm. her personality I am a big fan of Anne Tyler. I've been reading her books for years and I always enjoy them hugely. I read this initially uh, a few years ago and, and loved it then. It's uh, just uh, yeah, really interesting to see her playing around with some of the same ideas. We've talked about it being quite a short book, but one thing I 
um, was quite interested to hear is that she was given um, a very specific word count by Hogarth Press. And apparently she struggled to actually hit all the amount of words that she was asked to to write and had to include lots of very varies in there. (laughs) (laughs) That's one way to do it. That's how I got through uni. Well, I think we can definitely say this is a book we'd recommend. It's great fun and as beautifully written and observed as you would expect from such a fine writer. So thanks, Hattie, for coming along to chat to us about it today. That's all right. Thanks for having me. As well as Vinegar Gal, there's quite a few other new unlimited titles on BorrowBox this month. You'll find the full list on our podcast notes, but we'll just mention a few here. I'm going to mention Dan Ariely's book, Small Change, which you can download for free as an audiobook or ebook. He's an economist who writes really engagingly about why we tend to make very bad decisions in our personal finance. For example, why we are comfortable overpaying for something just because we've overpaid for it before. And why does paying for things often feel like it causes physical pain? That sounds like a book I should definitely be reading. One I've downloaded already and reread is Colin Dexter's Last Bus to Woodstock. And that is the very first of his iconic Moore series. So I really enjoyed listening to that pottering around the garden in this sunny weather we've been having. As always, one of these feature titles for August is also our virtual book club choice. You'll find links to this online reading group, which we call Digital Readers, on the Hampshire Library's Facebook page. This month, it's Know Me Now, a gripping suspense thriller from award-winning crime writer CJ Carver. So download the book and join the conversation through our Hampshire Library's Facebook group. And don't forget to browse through the children's unlimited titles on BorrowBox because, of course, our annual summer reading challenge is now well underway. This is where primary school children are challenged to read six books over the summer holidays when literacy levels can otherwise dip. We've gone online for the summer reading challenge this year and we'll include a link in our podcast notes to our special website where children can register to take part. Uh, thanks to BorrowBox for helping to support this year's Summer Reading Challenge. And don't forget, how could you? You can use BorrowBox to download audiobooks and ebooks for free with Hampshire Libraries. That's it for this edition of the podcast. Thanks for joining us. I'm Mary Stone. And I'm Kate Price McCarthy. 